Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Um, thank you for your patience. We had a little bit of a technical challenge this morning, but I think we've resolved it. Um, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Martin Setrin here um, today to give Grand Rounds, and I'd like to welcome Lisa Adams to introduce him. Lisa is the Associate Dean for Global Health at Geisel School of Medicine. She's the director of Geisel Center for Health Equity, and she's an associate professor of medicine in infectious disease and international health. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Kelly, and welcome, everyone. I'm pleased to introduce to you today's speaker for Medical Grand Rounds in Global Health, my dear colleague, Dr. Marty Setrin. Marty, who is a Dartmouth College alum, class of 1981, currently serves as a director for the Division of Global Migration and Quarantine at the CDC headquarters in Atlanta. Their mission is to prevent the introduction and spread of infectious diseases in the U.S. and to prevent morbidity and mortality among immigrants, refugees, migrant workers, and international travelers. His program is responsible for providing medical screening and disease prevention programs to the roughly 80,000 refugees and over 1 million immigrants that are resettled in the U.S. each year. His division also sets guidelines for travel medicine by providing health promotion and disease prevention guidance to travelers globally. Anyone who has traveled overseas themselves or has counseled a uh, patient traveler has probably visited his web pages on the CDC website and followed his guidance um, for travel medicine and health precautions. So I can tell you about his um, impressive training credentials, his 100-plus publications, or the numerous awards he's received. But I think it's more important for you to know that Marty embodies the ideal and exemplary global health practitioner and expert. He has superb technical skills as an infectious disease specialist and medical epidemiologist, and he understands the role that culture, ethnography, micro and macroeconomics, and extreme poverty play in global health emergencies. And he always considers the lives of those affected at the other end of the disease outbreak or health crisis. Though Zika virus is the hot headline today, which incidentally is another issue that Marty is on the front lines of dealing with, helping set CDC policy and travel guidance for. But until recently, it was the Syrian refugee crisis that held our attention. We can all recall the disturbing images of Syrian men, women, and children in desperate transit, flooding the borders of Greece, Germany, and other European countries. And sadly, as they sought safe refuge, their resettlement became contentious and highly politicized as concerns about global health security and national security were raised. And it is exactly in this type of complex humanitarian emergency that you want Marty Setrin guiding our global health policy and practices. We're fortunate to have him here today to share his insights and experience in this area in his presentation, Refugee Crisis, Healthy Resettlement, and Health Security. Thank you. Well, sometimes I don't even recognize the people each Lisa introduces, especially when she's talking about me. That was very kind. Thank you. It's an honor to be to be back and to be with you. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you up front um, what I hope to get out of this encounter with you over the over the next hour. Um, one of the things that's motivating me to really want to do this. It's not just about sharing the data and the experience, but um, in the current um, scene, and especially in the current um, climate in terms of uh, 
of presidential elections and so on. It's, it's hard to see so much misinformation out there around this topic. And I think that the, the broader the audience of educated and informed individuals there are, um, to be able to understand uh, really what happens in terms of refugee resettlement and screening, health security, and be able to be a voice and an amplifying voice with factual information, regardless of your you know political uh, leanings or allegiances or philosophies about about refugees or not. But I think that we're all better served by having really good information about what actually goes on. And so what I hope is at the end of this, in addition to the three objectives. That I, that I wrote in terms of the content, is that you will feel better informed to be a credible voice in your community as opinion leaders uh, around this topic. And when, when people ask you or things come up and, and sort of outrageous things are being said, um, you'll be able to say, you know, no, actually, it's probably not just like that. So I'm being transparent and clear, and I hope, and if I haven't accomplished that at the end, please come up and ask me any questions either after this or by email. So what I want to do is, um, is go through a little bit of the, the environment about, around the refugee crisis um, and then speak and contrast um, the refugee crisis that Europe is experiencing with the um, process of refugee resettlement that we have had ongoing in the United States for decades and how we address health issues and what are the impacts of those health issues. So that's um, the, sort of the scope of the content of this. So let me um, let me... Um, put things in frame, and m most of the images I've taken from um, published sources in the media and are usually credited, so you'll be able to find them. These are some really extra, uh, excellent photojournalists um, that have been covering this story. Wars and political unrest in Syria, Iraq, and Somalia have forced um, d people to flee their native countries under, under persecution. Ethnic minorities in, from Burma are fleeing um, persecution and poverty. Unrest in Ukraine has also caused many to take refuge. And with so many countries in the globe under siege, we are experiencing the largest global refugee crisis since World War II. And images like this of mass migrations by land, by sea, are just uh, not uncommon in their populating the headlines um, over more than a year now. Looking at it sort of quantitatively, here's some data from UNHCR over the last 10 years or so, so showing the number of people that are displaced by war and what, how we've reached this staggering new high of almost 60 million. Now this 60 million includes internally displaced populations within a country as well as people who've been forced to leave their country. The latter is the former definition uh, of a refugee by UNHCR, someone who has to leave their country of origin under threat of persecution and is unable to return without legitimate consequences. The refugee number is a subset of, of this total number of uh, displaced persons. Um, this is a photo of um, recent uh, efforts to move back some humanitarian response uh, with from the World Food Program and others into some of these devastated areas. But just to give, again, a visceral feel for the, the magnitude of destruction that has gone on here in Syria over um, the four-plus years that the Civil War has been going on. These are images from the New York Times. Um, here's the remains of an apartment in the northern neighborhoods, <coughs> neighborhood of Alshaz, where there's 11,000 homes being destroyed. <coughs> 
so by the numbers, I think some of you have seen this, um, 4.1 million Syrians have fled their country since the beginning of the Civil War in 2011 as part of a broader um, <coughs> movement in the Arab Spring. And as is the case with, often with, um, with displacement from war is that the biggest initial um, burden and impact obviously is on the affected populations. And then right after that, it's the neighboring populations because most people are leaving um, and crossing a land border, contiguous land border. So you can see here um, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, um, and so on, Iraq and Egypt, where uh, the numbers that are hosting in these what we call secondary countries of asylum are really staggering. And they're at the point where really they are overflowing in their capacity to be able to continue to host uh, populations of this size. Um, the internally displaced populations in Syria uh, approach almost double what the refugee migration flows look like. It's almost 8 million. About um, half of these, I think that's right still, about half of these are children, sometimes children unaccompanied or only with a single parent. Um, there are more than 16 million total inside and outside of Syria um, that are in need of assistance, and their journey has um, taken them often as an early stop uh, to, from the secondary countries of asylum through very hazardous routes um, by land or sea into Europe. And if we just look at um, the sea, the d very dangerous sea uh, crossings that are made in 2015 um, in, in moving these flows moving into Europe, you can see over a million um, arrivals by sea in 2015 and already 80,000 um, in 2016. And the major sort of portals into this uh, place or through Greece, um, not only through Greece, but certainly that is one major portal. And often it, it involves contiguous migrations through parts of Eastern Europe uh, and then into second and third countries of asylum, fourth countries of asylum. Um, and basically these flows get um, altered regularly by policies of either the European Union um, or policies of individual governments. But the amount of, of mass migration has really affected um, sort of some fundamental principles around the formation of the European Union, including the open border policies of the Schengen Zone Agreement. And as the peripheral countries um, struggle to manage the periphery of those borders um, with um, not always great amount of success and being forced into conflicting policies between keeping open borders or closing them, responding to the desperate humanitarian need versus responding to the, the pressures within their own, in their own countries and some of the nativism pressures. Um, it's created a crisis that Europe has not really been able to manage in, in a coherent way um, very easily. I saw, I think it was yesterday morning in the New York Times, that a, a break-off group of 10 of the eastern countries have set up some agreement because they can't get to solid agreements on apportionment and quotas for the numbers throughout the EU that would be accepted by country to, to handle this flow. The other thing to point out is that Europe hasn't really experienced this kind of a crisis since World War II in terms of the magnitude of these numbers. And it is not traditionally 
a place, not, the European countries are not traditionally a place for major refugee resettlement over the last, uh, since World War II. And so they don't have a systematic process. And I would, uh, although these people clearly meet the, the UNHCR definition of refugees, when uh, flows like this just show up at the borders of, of a country and people are seeking asylum, they're more often um, described effectively as asylees rather than, uh, than refugees in that sense. And I'll describe a little bit more about the difference and the importance in that difference. But these people are seeking asylum without having any advanced um, processing, notice, identification, vetting, um, referral base from the UNHCR, which the more traditional refugees resettlement countries like the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and more recently the UK have been part of um, refugee resettlement activities um, as part of humanitarian response for many, many decades. Some of the um, sort of cartoons, which are sort of painful cartoons, but reflecting the reality uh, are, are here. And I think one of the things that has been challenging um, has been distinguishing uh, inside this massive flow of people by the millions, how many are actually um, refugees fleeing immediate threats and persecution versus how many are part of what is called an economic migration who probably have a place of safety, but see opportunities for uh, improvement in their economic situation by continuing to move to the wealthier European countries, for example, um, who may or may not be stopping. So once they're out of harm's way, they may be out of place, but they don't see that as their ultimate destination. And this um, really complicates the asylum-seeking process, because in these same massive flows, there's a confluence of migrants of different types, economic migrants, family reunification, et cetera, blended in with the, those who are literally fleeing um, a war zone who have no safe haven. And this um, gets very difficult to justify or tease out without an advanced referral process that the UNHCR often happens when they um, deem resettlement as, as a necessary solution. In general, resettlement is not considered the primary solution to a refugee crisis or, or war. Um, often hosting um, refugee populations for a short time during the conflict with hopes of returning, finding diplomatic solutions and returning those communities back to their native homes is the preferred solution. But what we see in the last three or four decades is protracted civil conflicts like Somalia, like Syria, like many places, where people feel they have no choice and their hopes of going back to the rubble are, are diminished. And as a consequence, the share of caseloads of refugees for whom UNHCR, UNHCR sees resettlement as the durable solution is increasing in that regard. So we have a confluence of economic and other types of migrants in a refugee flow that make it difficult, and we have increased numbers of refugees who feel they have really no hope of returning to their home country anytime soon. Now, Europe is, um, and, and these large numbers are creating a lot of political uh, and social upheaval. There's a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of tension placed on them, and there's a lot of backlash uh, against uh, these communities. They're 
um, religiously and culturally very different, and you know, blending in or fitting into these societies is not always easy. But the backlash was has not been limited to um, to Europe. And I just pulled um, a selected set of headlines. Um, again, regardless of your uh, political affiliation on this on this topic or how you feel about immigration and and um, refugee resettlement, um, it's quite clear that there's a growing amount of uh, tremendous. Um, uh, rhetoric, stigma, misinformation that is driven by a specific agenda, and um, that that's happened in the U.S. as well. These things are intensified by um, perceptions that that these populations are dangerous, or that terrorists are infiltrating the refugee network, and it complicates tremendously the process. And regardless of how you feel about refugee resettlement, when you have this type of stigmatization going on, where services are being refused, healthcare assistance is being refused, um, it really places an increased emphasis on what can be done upstream for these populations in a uh, less chaotic and more coordinated and more systematic process of vetting, of screening, of health interventions. And so most of what I want to um, talk about in, in the rest of this is how we get to um, a process of health, health security for the, the refugees themselves, but also reassurance and health security for the receiving communities. Um, I debated whether including this map in, in this uh, in this state, but it's you know not lost on on anyone um, from this CNN um, poll, which looked at states and their governors and their attitudes toward continuing being part of the refugee resettlement process. I will say for. Decades since this program has existed, it, it has the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. It has enjoyed widespread bipartisan political support. Um, no matter how people felt, they all felt very good about um, the humanitarian approach and the way that the U.S. went about this program. And this is probably the first time in a very long time, um, as a result of our fears and as a result of our uh, climate uh, and as a result of terrorism that people are beginning to feel that the refugee resettlement program is um, potentially compromised by uh, infiltration of, of terrorists that pose a security threat. The data really don't support that. Uh, and I won't um, speak in detail to the security vetting process that goes on that takes years before being able to bring uh, Middle Eastern refugees into the United States, but I'm going to focus exclusively um, on the less political health issues. But um, I, I do think that it's um, so. This map shows a bit of a mosaic and where people, how people feel, but there's a lot of orange on here where the state uh, government is officially not welcoming. I will say that that is not does not uniformly represent. Um, all of the governments at a sub-state level. And so often what we have is cities, which are parts, have, have for a long time been part of very active resettlement programs, where the mayors of those cities and those communities are very welcoming and have entirely different politics than the, than the governors uh, at the state level. And this has set up a confrontation and a clash between state government and city government or county level government in terms of the ability to receive, the ability to um, offer services, enrollment in WIC programs and other things like that. So it's a really interesting um, sort of microclimate of some of the tension. And just because there's an orange state on there doesn't mean that all places in the state have not been welcoming. 
It's also important to, to point out that in terms of the um, responsibility for refugee resettlement at the, at the international level, engaging with UNHCR and others, that it is basically an executive branch decision and function of the federal government to set a number, which the president does every year, um, and a, regional, a set of regional quotas, and the admission process and the um, health and vetting screening processes are all dictated at the, at the federal level. However, it's very important that the continuity of refugee resettlement policies, um, especially around health, be extended into the states and communities. And where that sits is highly variable. Um, so how do refugees get to the United States? There's, um, I use the word uh, refugee in quotes here because um, not all parts of this A, B, C, and D structure are, would be defined formally in our uh, jargon as a refugee. But the typical resettlement process shown in A is, a, is that um, people are fleeing persecution and um, refugee status is granted in a combination between engagements between the UNHCR, the UN High Commission for Refugees, the U.S. State Department, and the Department of Homeland Security. And in that setting, the, the UNHCR does the initial vetting, determination, identity verification, and offers up a caseload uh, to governments that are part of the receiving process and the resettlement process. The U.S. can choose to accept uh, that caseload and the number and then begins a very detailed um, vetting process through these groups, which is extensive and, and, as I said, can take up to two years or longer in some cases. Into that, and what's not on here is the health component, into that we integrate, our program integrates very early, sometimes years upstream with a known caseload, say we're going to have 20,000 uh, Congolese over some X amount of time, and this is where they may be coming from. And we will begin working with that population way upstream, pre-departure, assessing uh, the situation. I'll show you some of that. There are alternative processes for basically process for asylum seeking, um, which are different. But the number of asylees that we bring in in this um, setting compared to the refugees is, is very, very different. And so we don't experience um, the same type of at the border crisis in this regard with refugee resettlement that our European um, colleagues do because we really have a systemized um, referral process and much of the work is done way upstream before, um, before folks are ever at our border. So let's just kind of go through um, the 20, the FY15 sort of top countries of origin um, by nationality, now, not by where they are being hosted, but this is their original origin. And you can see um, that in the last year, the Burma, Iraq, and Somalia, and the DRC was sort of in, in the lead. The numbers from Syria were quite small. If you look um, over a longer time frame, this is about a decade, at a regional distribution, you can see where these trends are going. Um, a couple things to point out, perhaps the um, the, the numbers from, from Africa, which are in blue, were very high at the turn of the century and in the mid-knots, uh, the mid but they dropped off and now they're really kind of on the rebound again. And the caseload uh, from conflict out of Africa is increasing and expected to increase significantly over the next several years um, in that regard. The other sort of thing to, to note is that the Middle Eastern, the Near East, and South Asian numbers are also um, beginning, they've been large and they're beginning 
uh, to increase and, and get larger. And of course, if you go way back, the European numbers had been high, but they're very, very small and shown in red here. So um, that's kind of the sort of bigger picture trend. Um, for the 2016 program, which began October 1st and will go on till September 30th, this is what are in the projections and in the president's declaration um, to, to Congress indicating where we expect to see. So the African numbers are in, in terms of that ceiling are still pretty large at 25,000. And these will be a, a large number of Congolese and a, a sort of closing out of the caseload of um, Somalis and, and the Sudanese in this regard. So we, um, we are going to be seeing a number of Congolese uh, increasing uh, out of Rwanda and Tanzania, um, two areas that I know Dartmouth is heavily uh, invested. In East Asia, we still have a residual caseload of the Burmese. They're, uh, the majority are in Thailand and Malaysia. Thailand, they're camp-based. In Malaysia, they're urban. Um, but uh, with the res resolution of some of the conflict in Burma, many of the refugees have finally been able to return, although the integration has been challenging. Um, and then small numbers from other places besides uh, northern uh, eastern region and southeast Asia. And you can see we're continuing to have large number of Bhutanese in Nepal and so on. So um, moving on specifically about the Syrians, you know, our commitment to the Syrians has been to increase, but the numbers to date have been very small, and this has been because of the extensive vetting process. So we've only admitted um, 1,600, 1,700 in, in, in FY15. The Obama administration made a commitment to scale to 10,000, which is a you know, significant increase um, this year, and the majority of these will be coming from Iraq, Jordan, Turkey, and Lebanon. Um, most of these refugees are in urban settings now, and we are establishing additional processing sites in order to handle this increase. The administration also made a, a scale-up commitment. The previous uh, years have been set around 70,000. This year we're expected to do 85,000 with an increased number in FY17 as well. Where do they go? Here's a map uh, colored um, by which states receive the largest numbers, and obviously Texas and California stand out here um, with smaller numbers um, in other places. But this state um, picture also masks a lot of variability within a state. And so here you see that certain populations have a predilection for being resettled. And this is just primary resettlement. This isn't second, secondary migration. But as you can see, um, the Burmese have a major home in Texas and, and so on. Now, even within that, there's secondary migration. This is a bit of an older slide, but I wanted to point out that even if you're not a state that receives a large number of primary refugees for resettlement, there's often a word gets out on the internet in these communities, and they're looking for opportunities. And so many years ago, a large number of Somalis moved from Atlanta uh, and the Twin Cities in Minnesota and settled in uh, Lewiston, Maine, um, and uh, set up a, a very large and thriving, vibrant community. Unfortunately, it's um, sometimes difficult for the healthcare providers in those areas to understand the trajectory of illness and the patterns and the culture practices of these communities. And after initial re reluctance, when some they were coming by thousands per month to these small areas in Androscoggin County, um, they've ultimately integrated quite well. Uh, but at times, there has needed to be special outreach training uh, of healthcare practitioners across the spectrum in these new areas of secondary migration. So it's not just an urban resettlement, and it's not just Texas and California, but it's widely 
distributed. So what, is, uh, what does the medical screening look like upstream? What are our programs doing? Um, there's a lot of things that are written out in what we call technical instructions and guidance. They're executed for refugees largely by a, a panel of providers from the International Organization of Migration based in Geneva. And um, you can find the details of this screening on our website, but a big part of it is tuberculosis screening, um, which includes rigorous approaches to sensitivity for diagnosis, culture, susceptibility testing, and treatment to cure as a requirement before people are cleared medically to come. And then those that don't have active disease who are determined to have latent tuberculosis infection are categorized, stratified by risk, and those health records are passed along. Um, this has been a very successful program. I'll show you some of of the other components and then the impacts of these things. In addition, the overseas exam um, involves um, some STI testing, administering vaccines, um, setting up comprehensive disease surveillance programs in the camps or in the urban areas focused exclusively on refugee populations. Sometimes that means building new laboratory capacity in um, these areas, as has been done in Kenya for the Somali refugees in Dadaab and Kakama. Um, why this matters, and I'm just going to use um, Kenya as an example of the, of the Somali refugees, is that migration out of the Horn of Africa is um, a global phenomena. And in 2013, MDR-TB was surging in Dadaab and Eastley in Kenya and impacting not only the refugee communities, but also along the path of these streams. 80% of these were Somalis that were seeking care. And TB anywhere is TB everywhere. As you can uh, see from this graph, that uh, although over 20 years um, in the orange bars, there's been a decrease in the incidence of TB in the United States among native-born populations. Until very recently, it's been completely flat uh, in blue for the foreign-born population, which comprises 65% of incident cases. Let me go back to that. And 88% um, of the drug-resistant TB cases are in these communities. The last few years, there's been the first um, fall off in the TB and the foreign born, and this is largely due to the increase um, screening with culture and susceptibility testing, and not just sputum smear as the criteria. And as a result uh, of our screening programs, we finally are starting to see they began in 2007, were rolled out over a five year period, um, completed in 2012, so they're uniformly applied. This is just, this is for refugees as well as immigrants, but we're seeing not only the first drop off in rates of TB in the foreign-born, but we're seeing a shift in the timing of TB case presentations in this community. It used to be 80% within the first six months of arrival, and now it's 80% after, after two years. In the first six months, we're not seeing acute cases. So mostly what we're seeing is relapse latent TB infection. Um, we recently summarized in two different publications the impact of this enhanced screening program and treatment to cure. Um, an excess diagnosis of over 1,100 cases per year. But 60% of these were smear negative and culture positive that had previously been missed by simply using microscopy as the threshold for detecting disease. Um, these programs have saved health departments conservatively over $15 million. Um, in March, about a year ago, in the annals, there was a 
comprehensive uh, research report on this, including a video um, describing the impact and um, the extra case dis, uh, detection. Uh, they'll show you this sort of complicated graph, but basically we directly correlated the decrease from baseline in the purple. The baseline is in the blue dotted line across the top, but the decrease, the, um, the decrease after arrival is completely matched by the increase in case detection through the overseas screening program. So it's not a change in number or who's coming or things like that. It's really just employing more sensitive techniques to find cases overseas, treating people to cure before they get here. In terms of um, beyond the required screening, of which is fairly comprehensive and TB is sort of the paramount thing, we also take advantage of the required medical encounter um, over the course of several years prior to the resettlement to do um, public health programming. And so we know that neglected tropical diseases, particularly uh, neglected parasitic diseases, create a huge burden. Here's just an example of the burden globally of soil transmitted helminths, and not only they may not have the uh, same impact in mortality as TB and malaria, but certainly in terms of morbidity, um, ability to integrate child's, uh, children to learn and grow, major impacts. And we find that by giving um, single doses of uh, anti-helminthic anti therapy, albendazole, albendazole, praziquantel, ivermectin now as a package, we can have a tremendous impact in deworming um, the entire population before they arrive, which is good for the health of the refugees, it's good for the receiving communities, and it's great for the, the probability of these kids integrating. Not only that, it's, it's the right thing to do, it's also the smart thing to do. And so here's the estimated program costs of looking at uh, the Asian refugee cohort of almost 28,000 um, for a program that would be otherwise domestic screen and treat in your clinics, what those costs are versus the overseas mass drug administration, just a dramatic reduction, and you get the same basic impact of, of, ridding, of ridding the burden of disease. Here's um, what we've seen in before and after. These are old data, but before and after we began these um, mass drug administration programs along the different um, parasitic infections and just huge reductions with very cost-effective and simple interventions. Um, we also do mass treatment for malaria. This is old. When we were doing this, it was TMP sulfa. Now we've switched to coartam because of the emergence of resistance. But since 2004, we've almost not seen any malaria in the resettled refugee populations as a result of giving this treatment. Post-arrival, what the clinicians do for us here is tell us whether the intervention is working, whether there's emerging drug resistance, and allow us to change the schedule. Um, sadly, refugees are not re legally required to be vaccinated, unlike immigrants, which have to be vaccinated according to ACIP recommendations before departure. But because refugees aren't immigrants and some policy determinations, they have fallen through the gaps once again. And uh, many refugees who are arriving in the United States with no vaccinations, we've dealt, we deal with outbreaks all the time, and we have to halt movement and go in and do sort of crisis vaccination control um, as opposed to preventive vaccination. And this is really a missed opportunity. Um, part of the challenge has been who's paying. State Department pays a lot of stuff upstream, health and human services downstream, and we just were trying to reconcile that. And finally, several years ago, uh, my counterpart at State and, and I just agreed that it really doesn't matter. We're going to both kick in and have skin in the game. Let's just get it done. It's, it's the right thing to do. And started developing the cost um, justification for this investment. 
we started with five pilot countries shown here, Malaysia, Nepal, Thailand, Ethiopia, and Kenya. We're scheduled to move uh, into the Middle East in, in 2016. These are just a map of the outbreaks. When you lay this on, of all the morbidity and mortality from the outbreaks and all of the costs of controlling the outbreaks, it just didn't make sense to, to not use a, a very effective preventive tool more outbreaks from 2003 to 2011 and in terms of stories i mean basically you know for the for the want of a very inexpensive vaccine that's less than a dollar um, if you don't prevent a pregnant mom from from getting congenital rubella syndrome passing rubella to her child you have a child that becomes dependent crippled and dependent on assistance financial assistance for its life and this has happened um, and so we've really been able to kind of make the case um, on an economic basis as well that we need to be able to do comprehensive vaccine so here's some cost comparisons to give 10 doses of vaccines to each of the filed childhood vaccines overseas is 76 uh, percent less costly than the same vaccines in the US um, if you give 10 doses overseas um, you can basically reduce the cost to fully vaccinate a child by uh, a tremendous amount. And the benefit of eliminating the disease and the burden is, um, is clear to everyone in this room. Here are some of those cost um, savings. And just trying to make this case that we should invest the money from a broader pers perspective than simply whose budget things will come out of and who's going to pay for this. So it's been a very successful program. We're beginning to implement. This is what 11 diseases that we uh, currently uh, protect against with vaccination in this program that are shown here. We try to give two doses of most. We at least commit to giving the first dose. Some vaccines are really hard to get and they're still very expensive to deliver overseas, but we're expanding this program pretty regularly. Um, I wanted to just go through as, as we sort of begin to wrap up how challenging it is to actually um, mount a credible U.S. standard-based vaccination program in the austere setting of, of refugee camps and urban refugee populations. So Here's some of the um, the efforts in the in Thailand in the camps on the on the border for the Burmese. Um, uh, refugees, and not only do we have to get access to safe, effective, um, approved, and cold chain maintained vaccine, but we have to document it very well so that the vaccines aren't um, re you don't redo all the vaccinations here after arrival and obviate the the savings. Um, in addition, we have to get all that information that's well captured and documented at the clinic level all the way through an electronic entry system in a, in a type of registry. And those of you that work in vaccine know how difficult it is to get national electronic vaccination registries, but for refugees we've been able to do this, and then pass that information to state and local health departments, county programs, and ultimately to clinicians, to people like you in the room, so that you'll have access to these records. Um, procurement was tough originally for us to get UNICEF pricing. We ultimately were able to do that, but that was not an easy cold chain establishments, logistics of accessing a population for a second dose schedule changes to accommodate outbreaks, getting vaccines into countries that don't have them. A lot of places use monovalent um, measles, but we want to give MMR and how to get MMR into those places. Um, having a robust adverse event monitoring system and then the internet access for comprehensive data 
entry. So I'll show you a couple of pictures of the kinds of systems that are established um, to, for, for cold chain uh, monitoring and fail-safe pre prevention, electronic uh, alerting uh, and protection of the vaccines, um, going through some pretty uh, tough environments in order to get to the community and follow up and give second doses. And um, so far since 2013, when we began to roll this out, there's over 100,000 refugees that have been vaccinated with 700,000 doses, highly successful um, program in high-quality um, U.S.-approved vaccinations. So this is what the rollout looks like. And what you can see, I think the important piece here, these are our Tier 1 countries where we began um, the rollout, the number of refugees that are covered, but also the coverage rates. And we often exceed 98, 99 percent coverage in these populations, which are highly motivated. These are consented voluntary programs. It's not a legal requirement, um, but they very much want access to the vaccine. Um, we don't see a lot of vaccine object objectors and things like that. And, um, and, and we reach coverage rates, um, certainly sometimes that are higher than the domestic programs that we have. And in, in places and states where governors have told the, the clinicians that they can't provide health care to these communities, the coverage rates risk falling even lower. So this is just clearly the right thing to do, even though it's, it's more challenging. It's clearly um, the way we want to go. So we're moving on through Tier 2 countries, and we'll find new challenges with smaller programs, and finally the Tier 3 countries as we expand this program. We also think it's very important to provide information to clinicians uh, so they understand the profile, the social profile, the epidemiologic profile, and the disease intervention profiles that have occurred upstream. So on our website, we have pages based on these different groups. If you have any doubts about whether a group was receiving um, antiparasitic therapy, antimalarials, vaccinations, TB screening, you can um, find what the program looks like um, here. So with that, uh, I know I've maybe taken, uh, eaten into a little bit of your question time. I just wanted to wrap up to say that um, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program is not just a humanitarian program that's providing excellent um, screening and health care services and really focused on the populations um, at risk and very vulnerable, but it is also a, a very systematic, comprehensive program that uh, attempts to deliver the sort of U.S. standard of health care screening and prevention opportunities um, to not only protect the refugees, but also protect the receiving communities from this misinformation that somehow they're going to come in and, and spread diseases throughout our country, that these are a source of, of plague and ills. And in fact, this is probably the most highly screened, highly vetted, and highly um, protected from a health perspective population, despite their vulnerability um, of any of the kinds of folks that come in. There's the Populations that arrive in the U.S., travelers, for example, um, don't receive this level. Uh, you know, folks that are coming in on temporary visas, students that come um, to work here at the institutions or in employees, um, folks coming, healthcare workers coming from the Philippines to work on our hospitals um, don't have this degree of TB screening, for example. We don't have um, national or um, consistent policies across states and institutions about doing 
doing the kinds of things that are done for the, for the refugees. So there are health gaps to close, to be sure. Um, but in my mind, refugee health is not one of them that really poses the risk and the threat that some would believe. And so I really appreciate the opportunity to share that information with you and hope that you will be a voice to share some of this um, common sense information um, with others should these, these topics come up. Thanks very much. Thank you for sharing the information and for giving us the time for questions. I'm sure there are many. Anybody want to get us started? Thanks for a good talk. Um, you showed the statistics that you know, for Syria, the, the magnitude of how many people are trying to get out. I mean, I, I know we've increased from 70,000 to 85,000, but it's sort of imagine a, a, a political world where there, it were possible to really increase the numbers in the U.S. Presumably, you guys would have to adjust your strategy to pick on the most important stuff because we wouldn't be able to do this incredibly thorough process and process 200,000 people, right? So, is that, is that already imagined? Is that it is imagined. So, there's there, there's scenario planning um, because even if it's not part of the resettlement pipeline, at, at CDC we have obligations to these populations, um, those in camps that are not resettling as well, and so we're trying to imagine and scale health programs and interventions and, and distribution of mass treatments uh, anyway. Um, so the, the political determinations will be made on the, the quotas, the numbers, how, what the capacity is, and the ways in which that goes on. But delivering global health interventions to detect uh, respond and prevent uh, in terms of infectious disease threats and others is a major priority for the U.S. government and for CDC. And so we're already thinking in scale and how to deliver that, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that the obstacles to healthy resettlement are bigger in other fronts than they are in scaling health interventions. Those, those are scalable. I think the obstacles are really elsewhere. Martin. <laughs> Look, this wonderful critic said to you, how this is set up totally avoids refugees from El Salvador and Honduras. That it, it, it serves as a way to, to just forget about that group of people. So that's a great question, and, and, and I think that um, that's not exactly the case. So we have we have a large flow of Central American unaccompanied children and children with single parents that are moving through on the land border, presenting at our border in much in much the same way, although in many smaller numbers than the Europeans are seeing with the Middle Eastern migration. Um, and we. Um, we do work very closely with, with Homeland Security and Customs and, and Border Protection folks to set up these things. Uh, the programs that we're setting up, vaccination and other things, um, in those settings are at, at our borders. We would like to be able to move a lot of that upstream as well. And as a result of some of those migrations, there have been pilot programs started in doing um, second country of asylum processing or applications for that kind of status in, um, you know, I think in Guatemala, looking at it in Honduras as well. But yeah, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador are three very important source flows. Now, it's, uh, again, a little bit different. Defining them as refugees is not something that UNHCR is act actively in. And so um, both the economic 
issues that drive that and, and the violence of the drug uh, cartel and the drug trade is a, le a legitimate driver, but they aren't really fully on the radar screen as UNHCR defined refugees, which affects the entitlement to different services. So when they come to the border, they're asylum seekers, a different set of programs take place. Initial custody for 72 hours is the way it's set up is within the Department of Homeland Security. Um, after that, unaccompanied children are turned over to Health and Human Services um, to ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, and they're processed legally in different ways, and then they're looking for um, homes. The vast majority of those unaccompanied children have um, connections through relatives or, or next of kin to, and get um, matched and, and try to be uh, settled into those families. Some of them will move into um, into sheltered spaces that are run by Health and Human Services. But I don't think there's a, these programs neglect that flow or the pressures of that in our hemisphere, I think. And in fact, the model of what we do in these programs, since we're, our group is active in that process as well for the unaccompanied children, we apply the same principles and the models and, and efforts and working with foreign governments to try to set up similar um, processes and patterns. But again, there's a lot of political context and overlay that affects a lot of this, and we have to work within some of the constraints of what those, how those people are defined legally in terms of their status. Dr. Sedlicek. So, apparently, many refugees, especially from Syria, have smartphones. Has there been any attempt to use smartphones for like registration, maybe screening? Yeah, that's a great, great question. So, um, we have this process that, and in fact, I've seen Dartmouth has it as well. It's uh, a Shark Tank like equivalent. Um, last year at CDC, where innovative ideas can be brought through and then um, uh, pitched and then uh, for funding. And uh, we proposed last year a smartphone proposal for, for mig migration mapping, migration tracking, and then delivering of, uh, through, through phones of, of health messages and surveillance capture. So we're in the midst of that project right now. A uh, while back, there was a lot in the fall, I think there was a New York Times article which showed the um, impact and the penetration of um, cell phone technology in these populations and the way in which it was aiding the migration flows. Um, some people find that it's a lot cheaper to buy even a smartphone than to pay uh, a coyote or somebody who's exploiting um, safe passage in migra migration routes that they can get all the information they need from that. And UNHCR now considers, as they looked at what are the requirements, top three requirements to provide refugee populations for their health and safety, a smartphone is, is way up on the list. So I think we're going to see even greater penetration. And our challenge in using that technology, ironically, is not the tool itself or the availability or penetration. It's that the cell carriers um, change. As people cross borders, the national carriers change. And unless you have a way of swapping SIM chips and, and connecting those pieces. So that was what our proposal was about, is sort of mapping out the, who the stakeholders were in the business sector to be able to um, connect with to make that more effective. Yeah. I have two questions. The first is, um, do you think that the Syrian issue is sort of a special case? I'm just kind of struck by Massachusetts forbidding them um, and wondering whether, wondering whether the Boston Marathon had an influence in that because they're basically a very liberal state. Um, and um, my second question is, are children screened as rigorously as the adults? 
the question arises out of a kid who's in the hospital, a Nepalese kid who has active TB and relatives had TB with the kid. Right. Well, that so that's a, um, both a great question. I'm going to take the latter um, first. When we, uh, I came to the division in 1996, we started looking at all these programs in the screening, and it was a smear-based screening program, and it was a smear-based screening program that started at age 14. It was only focused on adults. Um, one of the things we did for the first five years is study uh, what we were missing and whether that was effective, and we found, um, so we did pilot um, studies in immigrant populations in the Philippines and Vietnam that there was a you know an unreported burden of TB in children and we moved with the change in our TB um, guidance and instructions that happened in formally in 2007 but in pilots beginning at 2000 um, we started screening down to age two it's pretty tough under two to get reliable sources but so um, the new program screens children as well as adults um, and it does enter through chest x-rays, but other means, and it's culture-based, and we do susceptibility testing on the front end. Previously, people were, you know, started on, on therapy assuming that they had susceptible disease and waited to fail before they were switched. Now we do DST testing with the very first cultures, um, and it's really made a difference, and we're finding a lot more TB in kids. Um, the TB in kids may or may not be as communicable as it is in adults. That's still out for debate, but the burden is much bigger than it was expected. We also saw this in the international adopted community as well. Um, and so we've been screening that pool of, of people um, down to very young ages. Syrians. I, you know, it's hard to know. If you look long enough in history, I'll bet there are equivalents. If you take a shorter view, I think the confluence of protracted war, um, the infiltration of, fa of failed states in the Middle East with terrorist interests, multi-faction terrorist interests, has really um, cast a lot of suspicion in people's mind on the security safety of the, of the resettlement program. That and the fact that, you know, that Fun, different, the conflict between, you know, Muslim versus Christian and aspects of those things about resettlement really makes makes things challenging. Um, so there are some very special circumstances that have conspired at the same time to, to make this more difficult, but I don't think they're unique. There's always been, if you look back at, at um, anti-Semitic persecution and resettlement, and, you know, there was big debates about whether the U.S. should admit large numbers of Jewish refugees refugees at a time. You know, so I think that these parallels have existed. Um, you know, our, our fears um, and xenophobia are probably long-standing aspects of, of humanity, especially under stress and in crisis. Um, but certainly, as, as at a micro level, I think that this is making resettlement of Syrian refugees more challenging. Yeah. Um, you say more about the community-wide drug administration. Um, I know that there has been great success with the um, with the soil helmets, but you also implied that there was great success with malaria. And, and I thought there's been a recent report showing that, that malaria is not as successful. Um, am I mistaken? On that? Yeah, well, it depends. Again, I'm speaking about this MDA for um, this is a really unique setting, right? Because we have the opportunity. We're going to engage in a population that's in an either epidemic or endemic or holoendemic environment where there's repeated exposure. Um, but we're going to go in, and we know this population is moving from an area of high prevalence 
to, to lower zero prevalence. And so, in fact, in those settings, mass drug administration, um, as opposed to finding the cases and treating, is tremendously successful and cost effective. Now, MDA programs, I think, in malaria are pretty good, but they have to, and same with soil transmitted helmets, in country where there's constant exposure, they just have to be repeated sometimes every six months and augmented by insecticide treated bed nets and other things. So if you're not removing people from the exposure area, you have challenges in sustainability. But overall, if you look sort of the global health picture overall in the reduction of, of malaria, um, globally, uh, the combination of programs, including drug, mass drug administration, especially scaling up um, treated bed nets, has been basically remarkably successful and has had impacts on reducing um, childhood mortality. So I have a question for you, too. So I'm, I'm wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about the approach to addressing non-infectious health needs of the mm, population. That's a great question. Can I add in mental health? Mental health, <laughs> mental health and chronic diseases. And those are, so, um, it, you know, our mandate and mission is about preventing importation and spread of communicable diseases, but that doesn't stop us from venturing into these realms. I would say on the chronic disease area, we've made some strides partnering with other places in CDC on nutrition. Um, we've seen the intersection of the helmets and um, nutritional deficiencies. Um, we've seen problems uh, with lead poisoning. We get feedback in lead contamination from batteries in camp settings. and so. We have basically moved into that realm and are, and are doing interventions um, regarding that in terms of supplementing uh, food sources and rationing, in terms of removing sources of lead in, in those communities. Um, but our activities in there are smaller than, than they are with the communicable disease arena. The need is there. In terms of addressing more of the uh, chronic diseases of hypertension and those things, the screening will pick that up because it's a comprehensive medical exam, history and physical and they get listed. There's class A, class B, um, communicable, and then there's classifications for other conditions. And those are all noted during the exams. Those chronic conditions are often, if they can be managed at the time upstream, they are, but often they're moved to management for post-arrival. And in the mental health arena, I wish I could say we've been more successful, but this is probably one of the greatest gaps to still close. And we're beginning to get screening tools to identify um, at-risk populations, but um, even if you can identify them, having the capacity to intervene and when to intervene in this whole process of, of migration is still a hotly contested topic. The services generally are not available um, in a culturally appropriate way. Um, in these, in these uh, secondary countries of asylum, there's still a lot of ongoing trauma and stress. And the type of services that we have available in the U.S. sometimes aren't culturally directed. And so we still, I think, have huge gaps in the, in the mental health arena. Those that um, you know, are interested in, in, in mental health issues and population-based stuff will find a field that's open to your innovation and ideas. It's a huge gap. Lisa, did you have yeah, that? Was like, okay. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much. There's for one more in the back there. We can talk afterwards. Yes. We'll talk, come on down. We'll talk afterwards.